If you have your Bibles with you, please open to John chapter 9. <clears throat> John chapter 9, the entire chapter describes this miracle Jesus did, uh, the healing of the man born blind. <clears throat> it's a long chapter, so I wouldn't take a lot of time reading the whole passage. I would like to just read a couple of verses, 24 and 25. John 9, 24 and 25. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Father God, as uh, we open the scripture, I pray to your Holy Spirit that you'll prepare our hearts. It's a very familiar passage, and because it is a very familiar passage, uh, it's so easy for us to assume we know the lessons in this passage, but there is so much to learn. I pray that you'll open our eyes. Lord, we pray that you'll open our spiritual eyes, you'll open our heart, and you'll Keep all the distractions away so that your spirit can minister to our hearts. Lord, I pray, dear God, that you will help us to examine our lives in the light of your word and continue to grow in your love. For we ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> John 9 is a very familiar passage, and uh, uh, it, it does have several different layers of things we can learn from this passage. It's not really a passage, it's an entire chapter. So uh, when, I, when I started preparing and I thought, you know, there are so many angles we can get into this passage and pick so many uh, gems of truths which we can apply to ourselves. So uh, I, I, would, uh, I, I didn't want to go into all those details of how many different angles we can see this chapter in and how many different lessons we can learn. Uh, but I, I just want to cover a couple of highlights which are, generally mentioned when we come to John 9, the first fact that uh, uh, this man had no connection or no relationship with Jesus, not a religious man, he was just a beggar who was begging almost all his life since he was born. Uh, and then he meets Jesus and he has this personal encounter with Jesus and it changes this guy's life. And we also have, on the other hand, a lot of religious leaders who knew the word of God, who were the experts in interpreting the scripture who are supposed to be the people who should be most knowledgeable about God and God's nature, uh, who are resisting what is happening here. Very similar to what we studied last, uh, uh, during my last sermon on John 5. Uh, just the resistance of these religious people uh, to change. Uh, so th 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 that, that struggle is also obvious in this uh, miracle. Uh, but uh, verse, 24, verse 25 probably is the most popular verse which is used a lot uh, when we meditate, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Uh, so so the, the truth that is highlighted often when we come to this passage is that uh, you, you, really you really do not need to know a lot about God to live a life for God. Your knowledge is helpful, but it's not necessary. What is necessary is an experience 
of knowing Jesus as your Savior. You can have a lot of knowledge, but if you don't have an experience, that's just really not much, of, uh, not much use for the kingdom of God. Maybe that's good enough for seminaries, theological uh, schools, and writing books and commentaries. Maybe all that knowledge is helpful. But if you don't have an experience with Jesus Christ, it does not matter how much knowledge you have. Um, God can't use you much. On the other hand, if you do have an encounter with Jesus Christ at any point of your life, if you have a personal relationship with Christ, God can still mightily use your life. That, that's definitely the bottom line highlight of this story. And uh, I do tell people who are Christians, you say, you know, uh, we, we are very reluctant when it comes to living as a witness or talking to people about our faith to share about Jesus to others. We say, you know, Anand, I don't know the Bible well. Uh, I'm not a scholar. I, ha I myself have too many questions. We use a lot of excuses. And, uh, uh, you know, this is a great passage where I say, you know, yeah, most of those excuses are legitimate and true. But for God to use your life, God is not really counting on your uh, uh, brilliant arguments and logic and uh, presentation skills. Even though I'm not against any of those things, God will use all those things uh, provided it's originated from an experience of knowing Christ. But what God really requires for us, to, for him to use our lives is an experience. I, I don't know who this guy is. You know, I'm not a theologian. You guys know a lot about Old Testament, New Testament. You, you are the experts. I, I don't know. Please don't confuse me. Let me tell you what I know. I was blind. Now I see. So uh, that's definitely the highlight of this chapter, and uh, I hope we will never forget that point, because if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it does not matter how much you know about Jesus. You can know a lot about Jesus, but if you don't know him as your Savior, uh, your life can't be used much for God's kingdom. It always starts with knowing Christ as our Savior. The second reason I, I, I love this chapter very much is because it does deal with a very complicated theological question. You know, uh, I love tough questions, not because I have all the answers, but it really stretches your thinking. For many Christians, uh, this is a very uh, hard question to deal with. Anytime there is suffering, it's very natural human tendency for us to try to connect this suffering to some past sin or mistake. It's, it's just natural for us to try to connect the dots and see, why did this happen, God? Uh, why me and uh, why, why is this person like this? So uh, it does deal uh, with this question of suffering and it gives us some great answers. And I hope uh, by the end of this sermon, it will help you to see some other better answers than just the simple answer we try to give that every, every suffering is caused by sin. The disciples ask a question that reflects a narrow theology of God's justice. The assumption here is that if people suffer, then they must have done something bad or something that deserves this suffering today. It has to, because God is just, God is loving, so if you are suffering and if you are going through pain or if you are going through something wrong, definitely just track back and I am sure there should be something you have done which has caused this uh, suffering. So usually, uh, the tendency is to connect our present suffering to a past incident or disobedience or sin. In the case of a man born blind, it has to be something his parents did because he was born blind. Now, he hasn't done anything yet. He was born blind. So these guys just put the questions like, 
did he do anything wrong, which is very unlikely because he was born blind. And then they are even going a generation ahead just to make sure, did his parents do anything wrong? Where is the cause for this pain today? And so that, that is a question which they were presenting to Jesus and uh, uh, they were expecting a pretty simple answer, but Jesus really shocked them with this answer. But Jesus said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I don't think anybody was ready for an answer like that. They were, they were only prepared for an answer as to, well, either the parents did something wrong or this guy did something wrong. That settles the case. Let's move on. Jesus just opened their box into, a, like, into an area where they were totally not ready. He said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. It was not that this man sinned or his parents sinned. In other words, this blindness, this suffering, this specific suffering is not caused or connected to the specific sins of him or his parents. It is not connected to any sin, in fact. The explanation of the blindness lies not in the past causes, but in the future purposes of God. Now that is a new dimension for most of these religious leaders and also the people there. They always associated present pain with past sin or past disobedience. Uh, Je Jesus is just throwing a new dimension to them and saying, hey, it's not just those things that cause suffering. In fact, sometimes God's purposes can also uh, enable or uh, uh, let things happen through which God is going to get some glory because of what has happened in life. So, uh, from my... Uh, understanding of uh, suffering here and also reading some books. I just wanted to uh, present a, a, a simple summary of possibly three ways of looking at all suffering. I'm sure there could be more than three, but all suffering and problems in life are not caused by only previous uh, specific humans. And sometimes, my, my first option, sometimes it is our sins that cause the suffering. Uh, it is true that sin does cause pain and suffering. Sometimes. The second option is sometimes it's allowed by God to build our character and help us mature as his followers. So the first one is that, yeah, somebody did a mistake and it's connected to this. But the second one is that God is allowing it so that he will mature you or help you to mature or help you to uh, grow in his grace. And then the third one, sometimes it is allowed so that the work of God might be displayed in our lives. This is the third option which Jesus mentions there, that the work of God might be displayed in our lives. So uh, to just uh, uh, summarize, yes, sin can cause suffering. Sometimes it's not sin, but just God's desire to help you grow and mature that he allows or he brings in some challenges in life. Number three, uh, God is going to bring some glory out of this pain which does not make too much sense to you at this point. Pastor John Piper wrote a great article on John 9 and uh, it's very insightful. I want to read um, exactly as he wrote because it's so powerful. He says, God intends to display some of his glory through this blindness. In this case, it happened to be healing. The glory of God's power to heal. But there is nothing that says that it has to be healing. This is John Piper says, you know, God can glorify his, himself or his name in many ways. In this case, he chose to heal this person and get glory through the healing. When Paul, now 
John Piper says, when Paul cried out three times for his thorn in the flesh to be healed, Jesus chose a different answer there. It was Paul who was crying. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 I will put my power on display, not by healing you, but by sustaining you and empowering you. I love that. God does not always need to heal to get the glory, guys. God sometimes sustains you and miraculously makes you, uses you as a witness as to. You are a walking witness to Christ with the challenges in life, with the thorn in your flesh, with the pain in your life. God is still getting glory because sometimes we limit God's glory only to the healing part of it. He said, if you heal God, all of them will be surprised and they'll be so impressed. Well, even without healing, guys, God's glory is not limited only for healing, okay? With or without healing, God can still use our lives for his glory. So John Piper says, uh, in Paul's case, he says, I'll put my power on display. So in, in the blind man's case, uh, case, he put his power on display with a miracle, with a healing. In Paul's case, there was no healing done. But he said, you're still used for my power. My power is on display, not by healing you, but by sustaining and constantly using you as my witness. In other words, healing displays the works of God in John 9. And sustaining grace displays the works of God in 2 Corinthians 12. So either way, guys, God is going to get the glory. God is not limited to glory only when good things happen to you or healing. With or without healing, God has different ways of using people's lives, pain, and suffering. What is common in the two cases is the supreme value of the glory of God. That's what John Piper says. What is common in both these stories? There was a miracle in one story. There was no miracle in another story. But in both the cases, God was sovereign. God was using these stories for his kingdom. The blindness is for the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh is also for the glory of God. The healing is for his glory. And the non-healing is for his glory too. You know, when I read that, I almost like, wow. That's so deep. If I were in Paul's position, I would probably complain to God so many times and say, God, come on, God. You know, I'm serving you. And I know you are powerful. And I know what else I can do without this thong. I would have been giving God so many suggestions. Because my theology is like, you free me of this and you will see how much more I can do for you. But the lesson we all have to learn in life, and let me tell you, it's not easy to learn because uh, we, 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 we have an idea of what God should be doing, all of us. We have a theology of who God is, what he should be doing, and how things should happen. And because we are so stuck with our idea of who God is, what he should be doing, and we have a better plan of how God should be using us, we are always trying to squeeze God into our little plan, and that is where the struggle comes. I don't know how Paul, this guy is such a brilliant guy and I, I'm sure he had a lot more intimate walk with the Lord so he didn't resist it, he didn't fight with it after three times of asking God or multiple times of asking God when God said, my grace is sufficient for you. At some point, he settled with peace in his heart that well, God probably will use my life with the thorn in my flesh for his glory. It's a very hard conclusion to come to 
But once we come to that place of peace, where we recognize with or without a healing, my life is an instrument of God's glory. You know, guys, I'm telling you, it will change the way we look at life. It will change the way we focus instead of, when will this go away, God? When, when will this change? So, well, God, one day at a time. I'm not too worried about when. What do you want me to do today? With this thorn in my flesh. You know, that is where I wish all of us uh, can grow and learn about uh, our great God, that his glory is not limited only to certain kind of ministry. With or without a healing, God will still be glorified. The other aspect I want to bring to your attention is uh, this fact, this interesting fact of why did Jesus use this spit, you know? It's again a very theologically debated question. Uh, it's, it's funny how many commentators spend so many hours figuring out the Greek and like, dude, it's not that important, but yeah. But there is, there is some importance to it. So I did read a few commentaries and so what's the significance of spit? There is nothing very significant or unique about that particular spit, okay? It's not the spit that healed this person, it is Jesus. It's not the means, it's always God who uses, uh, God who has the power to heal people. So, uh, I just summarized a couple of thoughts uh, from why God used spit. First, Jesus did it because it was against the law uh, to do it on the Sabbath. You guys know how Jesus was constantly trying to teach the religious leaders that he was the creator of the universe, he was the master of Sabbath. You know, he was not under Sabbath. He is actually the one who created Sabbath. So he was the Lord of Sabbath. So he did it on Sabbath. Uh, and then in the, in the Pharisaical uh, tradition, because they had so many extra rules besides the law. Sabbath is the law. But they had all these extra rules of what you can do and what you cannot do because they are associated with work. One of that is they did not want people to cook on Sabbath. And part of cooking is you have to mix the dough or uh, uh, mix the flour to make naans, rotis or bread, what, whatever. So they didn't want anybody to mix the flour on Sabbath. So just to stop it from mixing the flour, they actually stopped mixing anything. So they, they were so meticulous in putting more rules, more rules, more rules. They said, no mixing on Sabbath. Now, Jesus purposely picked some dust mud mixed it. Now this is what according to the Pharisees like against the law. At least against the traditional law. So mixing really annoyed those guys or uh, they were so angry. If you notice if you read chapter 9 that is what really caught them and they, they started hey again it's not the healing that caught their attention it is the mixing of the mud. How did he even he should not have touched mud should not have mixed it. So that is where they started accusing. And the second reason why um, Jesus might have used mud is to show that God usually uses means, uh, uses different means in doing his wonderful work in this world. Now that, that's a new thought. I never thought of it. Uh, again, uh, John Piper used some other commentary. But he said, you know, God can just say a word and this guy can get eyes. He does not even need to see this guy. He, Jesus did miracles in so many different ways. Sometimes he was physically there. Sometimes he touched them. Sometimes he just said a word. Sometimes he was in this village and said something and the guy was healed on the other side. So really there was no restrictions as to what God can use and cannot use to heal this person. 
But one of the beauty uh, of this incident is that uh, it, it just reminds us that Jesus uses something that is natural, it's created as a means to the process of whole healing. And uh, one of the commentators says, you know, God created this universe. And uh, as much as it is true that there is sin in this universe and it is fallen, uh, it's not all bad. God uses those things to bring healing to our lives. So Jesus could have simply spoken and the man's eyes would have been opened. What this means is that God does not despise or avoid the physical things in this universe for his work, for his redemptive work. He uses the means of food to sustain our life. He uses the means of sleep to give us rest. And he uses thousands of other remedies to bring about healing. John Piper makes a comment and says, you know, God can use sleep to give you rest, uh, to give you healing, and he can also use penicillin to give you the healing if it is needed. God can use either of those things. He created everything, guys. So he's not limited to only natural, homeopathic, organic ways of healing. You know, he created so many things and all of these are just means which God can use. I, I really believe that uh, uh, it's, it's important for us to understand because there are some Christians who would not uh, approach uh, any uh, medical help and uh, they say, hey, you know, that, that's not in the Bible. Well, uh, I'm not saying jump to the doctors and go to the doctors every time you have a small problem, but uh, do not be opposed to a means if God can use it in the process of healing. So why spit? I love this comment. He says, Jesus always used different ways of uh, healing people because if he used the same method in every healing, you know what will happen? The disciple, disciples will just start imitating the method. They'll forget the guy who did it. They say, oh, you know what Jesus did? He first put his hand in the pocket. Okay, then everybody starts putting their hand in the pocket. Then he, whatever, this is human tendency to, basically, we want, if there is a template, if there is a method, if there is a pattern, we just want to copy it and just do it exactly as it is. I, Jesus gave no idea to these guys because every time he did it, he did it differently. If Jesus did any two or three miracles exactly the same way, I think by now it would have been a pattern. All Christians would have said, this is how Jesus did. Three examples, guys. Three strikes, okay? If Jesus did any three healings in the same way, by now it would have been a patented template for Christians. This is exactly how we have to do healing. Jesus did not want the disciples to pick on any of those signals because it's not the methods. It's not the pattern. It is Him who is healing us. Again, when it comes to healing, guys, uh, it's all about God's will, God's grace, God's timing. It's not who is praying. It's not how long you are praying. It's not who else is praying. As much as prayer is a very important part of our life, uh, why, why some things happen? God's grace, God's time, God's will. I just have to learn to surrender myself to God's grace, God's time, God's will, and not try to push God or give my agenda to God. So why spit? I really believe that God, Jesus did not want to pick a template or a pattern, and just glorify the method and forget the Messiah, the one who actually heals us. And it's a, it's a great story. This has a lot of twists. This is a perfect story for a Hollywood or a Bollywood movie because of all the twists it has. And it's a one miracle, guys. John 9 is one single miracle. 
Do you know how many times these guys have encountered with this guy? So let me just give you a little highlight, overview of the story. First, Jesus sees this guy. He heals him. Okay, there is some, uh, some interaction that happens in the first seven uh, verses. Then the next scene is the beggar and his neighbors. There's a huge debate going on if this is the actual guy who is healed or he's somebody who looks like him. Like, dude, really? That spot is empty. Come on. And this is, no, this guy looks like him. He's not him. So this entire second section, verse 8 to 12, is a discussion, a discussion between the beggar and his neighbors. This guy had to demonstrate and prove that he is he. I don't know what kind of ID cards he can show. My Aadhaar card, my ID card, my th finger thumb. No, 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 it's not you. It's like, dude, it's me. I don't know how long this guy argued with them, but finally they settled. The next scene, the beggars, the beggar has to face the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Man, this was hard because these are scholars. These are theologians. These are the guys who are smart. They know the Old Testament. They know what God should do and all the stuff. So now this is the very heated argument with the beggar and the Pharisees. So they were asking him all the theological questions. He only had one answer, you know, I, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. By the way, guys, one of the things in life, one of the important things in life is to get comfortable in saying the words, I don't know. You know, in our culture, it's such a bad thing. You're a dummy, you're an idiot, you don't know. We don't know a lot of stuff, guys, let's be honest. We do not know a lot of stuff. What's wrong in admitting that you don't know? But in our culture and also Chinese culture, they will never say, I don't know. You ask them a question, they will give some kind of answer, whether it's right or wrong, afterwards you can figure it out. You, even if they don't know the direction, yeah, just go left and right and right. What the <laughs> You know, when I first came to America, that was one of the things that really annoyed me. I asked anybody, they said, don't know. What, what do you guys know in America? In India, every chaiwala will tell you everything. I, well, that, that is so wrong, guys. When you don't know, please say, I don't know, okay? Don't struggle with that. This guy said, he didn't make up a story like, let me tell you from the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know, okay? I don't know. You are asking theological questions, I don't know. Let me tell you what I do know. I was blind, now I see. You know, in our faith journey, uh, I think as we mature and as we grow older, we do get comfortable with this idea of, I don't know, and it's okay. Long time ago, there was a book uh, written, I am okay, you're okay. It's a pretty popular psychology, uh, a book which was, uh, I am okay, you're okay. And uh, in fact, there was a preacher who preached on that book and it's, uh, uh, on that uh, topic and he said, in fact, that's not a good title. The title should be, I am not okay, and you're not okay, and that's okay. That's the truth, guys. You are not okay. I am not okay either. The only okay guy is Vishu here. Yeah. Because, because he denies it. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> See? This is how you should listen to the sermon, guys. What an application. That's the first time I heard him say, I don't know, by the way. Yeah. You are not okay. I am not okay. And that's okay. It's, it should be comfortable for us to admit that we don't know. So this guy is arguing with the Pharisees. They kind of complicate the whole issue and it didn't go well. And then the Pharisees bring the parents. I love the drama. 
Well, you tell us, was this guy really born blind? Well, we don't have the birth certificate. We have no evidence. Yes, he was born blind. We do, sir. But these guys were so powerful that the parents were kind of not sure what they can say and what they cannot say. They were, they were being very careful because these are religious leaders. They can persecute them. And then they basically just washed off their hands. They said, well, we don't know. You know, yeah, he is our son. The one thing we can say for sure is that, yeah, he's our son. Anything else, just you ask him because he is, he is old enough. And if you want to kick somebody, kick that guy. Like, what kind of parents are these guys? I don't know. They just washed off their hands and said, like, you ask him, he's grown older. And then, this is from verses 18 to 23, the Pharisees talk to the parents. And then the Pharisees come back to the beggar. Man, I, I don't think this beggar got so much attention in his entire life. Never. The religious leaders are coming back to him and said, we want to talk to you. Really? You, we want to talk to you. And in fact, it, this is how it starts. Uh, it says, a second time they summoned the man who, was being who has been blind. A second time. We want to talk to you again because yeah, the answers you gave first time, they're not clear enough. We want to make sure, we want to dig enough to get all the facts of call him again. And then, of course, this is when this guy is, this guy is blind. Uh, at least he was blind for all his life. And he really doesn't know much. But uh, suddenly, the sense of humor, you notice how he says, hey, Second time you guys are asking, are you really interested? Like, do you just want answers or you also want to become a follower of Jesus like me? Like, they're like, hey, who are you trying to teach us? And like, so they basically immediately turn around and throw him out of the uh, synagogue or the uh, sanctuary. But they do say, you know, they do ask him the second time to see if they can get more answers about uh, Jesus. And then the last part is when Jesus meets the beggar again. And then he says, hey, um, do you know the Son of God? And then he says, I wish, I, I, my, he simply says, you know, I would like to know. And then Jesus says, the one who you're seeing is the Son of God. And then he puts his trust in him. And the passage ends with he worships him. You know, that, that's the beauty of the story, guys. A guy who was sitting on the street or begging, having no clue, parents left him, everybody left him, and nobody cared for him. Um, no relationship with God, no future in his uh, sight, but ends the story with lecturing the Pharisees twice on the same day and then worshipping God because of this miracle that happened in his life. I want to shift our focus to the religious leaders because again, for me personally, I learn a lot from them and uh, I can see a lot of myself in the religious leaders, how I resist God and how we um, limit God in so many ways. Uh, some of the characteristics of willful unbelief. Not everybody is genuinely seeking God. We, we make the assumption that everybody is genuinely seeking God, and that's why we say, hey, let me help you answer some of the questions so that you can receive God. By the way, you have to understand not everybody is genuinely seeking God. A lot of people are genuinely seeking themselves, and they're trying to protect their lives and lifestyles. And they will fit in all the arguments that will fit in their lifestyle and encourage their lifestyle, but they are not willing to face the truth. So don't assume that everybody is ready to accept the truth or willing to learn the truth. Because that is why you get discouraged because, man, I gave him Josh McDowell, Ravi Zacharias, I gave him the brilliant guy's books. Yeah, but that guy didn't read. And even if he reads, he is not going to accept it because it's not just that he is looking for answers, but he is also looking for ways to justify his life or his sin or whatever. So not everybody is genuine seeker. So if after all your presentations, 
and offer all your prayer and love. If somebody is still resisting, do not be shocked. It does happen. Because there is something called willful unbelief. There are three important characteristics of people who are willfully, willfully staying in unbelief or no belief. Unbelief always wants more evidence but never has enough. People who are in this category, they'll say, hey, if, give me more evidence. Tell me more. Give me more answers. Then I will receive God. They, there is no end for how much evidence they want for, to believe in something. And on the other hand, they believe stuff which has absolutely no evidence or no clues. They choose, they are very selective believers. But when it comes to faith, they'll say, give me more answers. Give me more. And if you give me answers for these 10 questions, then I'll put my faith in Christ. Unbelief always wants more evidence, but never has enough. These religious leaders, they asked him for so many evidences. Who is that? What did he touch? How did he do? He, he gave all the answers he already has. These guys were not satisfied. They, they want more answers so that that will help them to believe. They are not looking to believe, guys. They are just trying to fix this whole story into their theology. Second, unbelief does biased research, research on a purely subjective basis. Unbelief does... They, do, they pretend like they are doing uh, neutral researches, and, uh, but they do a very biased research. They, they want the results they want, and they will do research in those, uh, with those... Uh, uh, questions or uh, uh, people so that they will get the results they want. So un unbelief does biased research on purely subjective biases and also unbelief rejects the facts and tends, now this is where, and tends to reinforce its bias or prejudice. What we do is we keep reinforcing what we like and when something radically different comes our way, we try to reject it, deny it, or say that's not as, as important as everything, everything else we believe. It, it's just too radical for us because that, now that will change the rest of your theology in your heart. So the best thing is just to say, well, that, that's not true, or that's not important, or just brush it off. Because if you bring that in, that's going to change a lot of established uh, of philosophy or ideas you already have in your heart. That's, those are some of the problems these religious leaders had. They already have a set theology. And this is what they wanted to do. This is how God should be. This is how he should be functioning. Some, uh, the, uh, this chapter began with Jesus healing a man born blind. A physical miracle happened. Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And he did it too uh, by making the mud which annoyed the Pharisees or breaking the Sabbath law. And so a conflict started, was uh, unleashed. And as the conflict progresses... I want you to pay attention. As the conflict pro progresses, it becomes plain that the blind beggar is seeing reality more and more clearly. And the Pharisees are seeing reality less and less clearly. As the story develops, the guy who started as a blind man is seeing reality more and more and more. Not just physically, also uh, uh, emotionally and spiritually. He's seeing reality more and more. The guys who started in the, st the beginning of the story, the guys who started, who have physical eyes, who can see, who have knowledge, who have all the uh, uh, scriptural un uh, knowledge of uh, Old Testament, we notice that they are seeing reality less and less and less clearly. I love this contrast. 
the beggar moves from seeing Jesus. Now, I, I, I'll give you this progression, okay? I'll give you verse by verse. The first time the beggar addressed Jesus, he said, Jesus, the man, Jesus, verse 11. Verse 17, he moves to, to the prophet, Jesus. He started with, I don't know who that guy was, that, that man. Verse 17, he says, he is a prophet. Verse 33, he says, Jesus, the man from God. And by verse 38, he actually worships Jesus as God. That's so powerful. Look at a blind man and the progression of his understanding or, or knowledge of God. The man, Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, a man from God, and then Jesus, my Savior and God. Now, on the other hand, the religious leaders are going the other direction, but the Pharisees move the opposite direction. Notice their words. Verse 16, this man is not from God. They are talking about Jesus, okay? Verse 16, this man is not from God. That is how they started. Verse 22, if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue and punished. They start with, this man is not uh, from God. That's how they started about Jesus. The second time, if anybody says this guy is Christ, you will be put into prison, you will be punished. And then verse 24, this man is a sinner. It's a, it's a very interesting contrast as to, this guy starts with this man, Jesus, and ends with worshiping Jesus. These guys start with, this man is a sinner, uh, the, uh, this man is not from God, and finalizing the statement, he is a sinner. Our own traditions and prejudice has the power to blind us. All of us have prejudices, biases. We, we, uh, none of us are willing to admit it, or none of us is... Uh, open to really look into our hearts, but we do have blind spots and prejudice and bias. All of us have it. Therefore, as followers of Christ, one of the important things we need to do as part of our spiritual journey is to frequently examine your own hearts and minds and perspectives and theology. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5, first, I love how he starts, first, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will, you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. You know, we all heard the story of John Newton who wrote this great hymn, Amazing Grace. Pretty powerful story. Uh, if you, if you never had a chance to watch that movie, do watch that movie. It's pretty powerful. Uh, as part of this movie, there is a little scene where uh, uh, William Wilberforce, who is the politician God chose for this uh, uh, reformation or change, uh, goes to his uh, pastor or his old preacher, John Newton. So before the final vote uh, on the British Slave Trade Act, William Wilberforce visits his old preacher friend, John Newton the former slave uh, ship captain. Now, Newton had this problem 
he had some he had this heavy guilt on his heart and every time he addressed a congregation or especially when he talked to uh, william wilberforce he he brought this up again and again and again and he says i am tormented by the memories of 20000 ghosts of slaves i am tormented by the memories of 20000 ghosts of slaves and their deaths he somehow felt that you know i was a cause for that i ruined my life i killed all these people and i am still carrying that burden of, of that uh, 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 that burden on my shoulders so he he was really tormented by that uh, guilt and pain and at this uh, by the time uh, wilberforce comes to visit him uh, this is at the end of the movie uh, at this point uh, john newton is totally physically blind so he's actually mopping the floor and uh, wilberforce comes to him and uh, as soon as he sees wilberforce uh, he gets into conversation and john newton says i once was blind but now i see and after a pause he asks wilberforce did i write that he's the one who actually wrote it but uh, the irony is he is blind now he is physically blind now and he's asking wilberforce hey i once was blind now i see did i write that wilberforce quietly answers yes you did with a huge relief on his face john newton cries out and says now it is true i once was blind but now i see and it is true now he is physically blind he can't see anything but for the first time he was able to see god's grace in a very new way that's why he says now it is true i once was blind but now i see i can see god's grace god's amazing grace even more clearly today and that is when he pens uh, he already penned this uh, verse long time ago and that is when uh, he again starts humming this verse amazing grace how sweet the sound how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i am found was blind but now i see for a blind man to be singing those words so powerful guys i my prayer is that you know as we continue to walk with the lord god will help us to take away some of those logs in our eyes we are all blind in some ways i just pray that god please take my take my prejudice bias or blindness and whatever theology i have about you please forgive me i once was blind now i see you know 30 years ago i i'm sure i told you guys many times i i worked with uesi many years and i was really big on doctrines and wrote a lot about doctrines taught a lot about doctrines and i thought i knew god a lot but i can honestly tell you looking back i can sing with john newton and say i once was blind now i see i talked about grace a lot never experienced or extended it to anybody else i was just a theologian who knew what was right what was wrong once you experience god's amazing grace it's a different thing i once was blind now i see 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for speaking to us tonight. It's never easy for us to examine our own hearts. It's never easy to face our biases, prejudice, our ignorance, or even arrogance. But this is part of our spiritual journey. You want to cleanse our hearts. You want to remove the logs in our eyes. But we rarely pay attention to the logs in our own eyes. We are, we are so obsessed with looking at everybody else's life because we want to help take the uh, little things in their eyes. I pray, dear God, that you will help us to take time to examine our own hearts, our own lives. We, we do not want to end up like these religious leaders who saw God's miraculous power right in front of their eyes. And they moved from saying that Jesus is not from God to sealing the fact that Jesus is a sinner. They were, they had eyes but they ended the story as spiritually blind people. God, it's my prayer that you will continue to work in my life and also in all of our lives here at NBCF. We want to spiritually see things. We are still blind in so many areas. Forgive us. Help us to see things in a new way. Help us to experience this amazing grace and live for you as a good witness. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name.